Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Today is a question and answer episode, so I appreciate all of you who put in questions. I'll be taking uh, questions from not only the last time, I usually do an Instagram story and ask, and so I'll be taking questions from both this recent round, and then I had a few questions I didn't get to on the last episode I did this. So I'm excited to get to all of them today. They come from a variety of athletic performance topics, and yeah, looking forward to getting answers on those. Before we get started with the show, I wanted to highlight our show's three sponsors, Lost Empire Herbs, The Plyomat, and Team Builder. Lost Empire Herbs is my go-to supplementation company. I love being able to um, use supplements that come directly from nature, being it a plant, a root, or even something off a tree like pine pollen. You may have heard of things like shiliagit, which is actually, it sounds weird, right? But it's like something that came from the decomposition of plants, yet it is highly recommended by strength coaches for improved strength and muscular outputs. And so many things uh, from nature have been discovered or studied throughout the years. The answers are so often found in nature. I believe that nature is a great place to look for your supplementation line. It's been a big difference um, difference maker for me. And if you want to check out some of my favorite supplements from the Lost Empire Herbs line, such as Shiliagit, Phoenix Formula, Pine Pollen, and more, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. And there you can use the code JOEL15, that's J-O-E-L-1-5, for 15% off your order. Our next sponsor is the Plyomat. The Plyomat is absolutely my favorite switch mat, my favorite way to collect standing vertical jump height, reactive jump heights, uh, to string together and get contact times in hurdle jumps or reactive strength measures in hurdle jumps, or as you may have heard on the recent podcast with Rich Burnett, the Plyomat creator, uh, single leg reactive strength. There is so much you can do with the device, and I highly recommend it to check it out. You can head to plyomat.net. Our last sponsor is Team Builder training software for athletes and coaches. If you're looking for an awesome training portal, be it for in-house athlete performance training or training online, Team Builder has what you need. You can find them at teambuilder.com. That's T-E-A-M-B-U-I-L-D-R.com. That being said, let's get into the questions for today. Our first question comes from Ben McGuire. Ben asks, what is the best strength and conditioning methodology for a sprinter who can't convert power gains to the track? And so this question really, I would actually say in terms of the strength and conditioning end of things, if you're not getting a lot of transfer out of the gym, is not to start by trying to add on uh, strength and conditioning uh, exercises and movements, although I think there's certainly good ones that can bridge the gap. But initially, a a good way to go about it is actually uh, the process of removal. So I would start with the process of actually removing things in the gym working more bare bones in the gym, such as like an easy strength or maybe even a modified one by 20. For me, one by 20 for more sprint type athletes ends up being more like one by 10 or one by 12 or something like that. Um, But really making things as simple in the gym as you possibly can. And then spending more time out on the track using special strength movements on the track. So things as simple as different sled variations, different hill variations, getting into things like microweights such as Leela Exogen, which is awesome, by the way, for helping you to feel the fundamental difference uh, that is sprinting uh, or between sprinting and the gym. Whereas the weight room, and this isn't to say that the weight room can't bridge gaps and offer some special strength links that can be utilized in sprinting. Uh, I definitely can. But when it comes to the actual differences, the weight room is much more uh, like an accordion in nature, whereas sprinting is much more angular, like a wheel. And the velocities and the levers are also different between those. And so some of the best ways to really feel power, or I think I should say this, is it's really good to feel power sprinting first. And then you know what that feeling is in the gym. And otherwise, if you don't know what that feeling of power is in sprinting, and I'll say too, Lila or Lila Exogen has been a really helpful tool for me to feel power even more in my sprinting because you're magnifying angular uh, momentum and the little twists associated with that as well. Once you can feel that, you get a better intuitive sense of things in the gym and what they're doing. And so I'm a big believer in developing that sense, that feeling first, and then going into or when you do expand the gym, you know what to feel for a little bit more. You know, you kind of get that intuition of, oh yeah, this does feel like and link up to this piece of sprinting. And I do think there's general things in the weight room where it doesn't matter as much, uh, like let's say a hex bar deadlift or a front squat. Those things are more general and 
Of course, they are going to have their points where they don't transform much anymore because they are more general. But when it comes to some of the more linking things, the special strength type pieces, I think that having that fundamental intuition of how to feel power on the track in a relevant manner uh, can be really helpful. And I will say too, as well as um, I gave some ideas more for the acceleration piece with the hills and sleds, in terms of starting to link into late excel and top end, things like flex leg bounds. You know, again, that's where the, the Lila or the Exogen comes in too, because you can really feel that in the top end speed. But doing some uh, bound variations, speed bound variations, flex leg bound in particular is a great one. That really helps you to feel the glutes and adductors and even hip flexors a bit in a way that's more uh, powerful. And that feeling can give you some more intuition as well there. So again, I would just polarize it a little bit to start. I would do a lot more variation and exploration of speed power in your dynamic work and use that work to help you feel more of what is going to fit in that middle or missing piece in the weight room. And then uh, lastly, too, and we talked about this with like the oscillating pieces, oscillating an impulse is that missing link and that missing piece. And I know for me, the more work I've done on the track, that's helped me to feel and understand which of those uh, intermediate pieces, those linking pieces are really valuable. And just to give one practical linking piece as well, it's like, all right, well, I don't want to totally dodge the question. So I will give something that is in the middle is stuff that is split squat oriented, that is oscillating and impulse oriented is really helpful in being a link as well as a hip flexor type work that is oscillating and impulse oriented. So those are two nice links to start from. But again, I'd initially polarize it a bit. I'd spend more time doing speed power on the track, feeling what that's like, and then trying to take that intuition into the gym and how you feel some of those linking things to come out of the gym into your speed work. The next question is from Fantas Strength. So he asks your opinion of functional patterns. And I'll just have to say, I, I've only seen some of like the highlight montages from some of the functional pattern uh, methodology. I've seen it used in training, I think like some fighters or wrestlers and things like that. And I always ask myself when I'm seeing some of these like training montages, I look at, uh, I wonder to myself, is this beyond the core of the system? I was like, well, what's the core of the system? So with functional patterns, it seems like a lot of the core is just developing rotation, transverse plane, a lot of like standing cable uh, bar work, standing cable work with a handle, a lot of uh, like working with a ball that's spinning in a 360, like a medicine ball attached to a rope. And I think all that stuff is awesome. I mean, for me, I'll just say like, again, not knowing, uh, not having been through the system, just seeing some of the highlights of it. I look at the core of rotation, like doing twisting cable work is great. Uh, doing twisting groundwork is awesome. I, I use a lot of that type of stuff. I use a lot of mace bells and club bells. And so I don't think there's necessarily a magic formula. I think any system that helps people to feel and interact with rotation in a way that they can connect with and they can feel the power within their bodies in that manner is awesome. And so, yeah, I think that the basics of it that as, a, as I've seen seem to make a lot of sense. I think with a lot of systems, I do think that with any system, no matter what it is, it's a, if it's a mace bell, it's a medicine ball, I do think there's always the potential to take that maybe farther than you need uh, if you're doing a sport i think if you're just doing training and want to have fun with training just for the sake of training then i think there's license to go farther with things you can start to add extra you, you could say dance steps into it or whatnot which i honestly do sometimes with like ground-based training and locomotion just because i if i'm not going out and playing ultimate frisbee today i don't want to have more fun with the training i'll have more fun with the training so i i think that that could be really meaningful for people in that sense. But again, I haven't actually gotten too far into the system, but I do like that rotational and you could say that infinite potential of just spinning a mace bell, a club bell, a medicine ball in a circle or a three or a 180 or an infinity loop, anything like that, I think has a lot of value. And so, uh, yeah, I think there's certainly a lot of really good things at the core of that system. Uh, next thing is Brand Brendan Hoppy too says uh, sprint workout or question sprint workout for horizontal jumps. And so, yeah, there's a lot of ways you can go with this. A lot of it just fits with the generalities of a good solid sprint programming. Uh, I do work with two elite jumpers in the online space currently, and I've worked with horizontal jumps for many years in the college coaching context. Uh, some of the things that I really like uh, nowadays is looking at, well, one is key KPIs or key uh, key performance indicators. So what is the thing that a horizontal jumper really needs? Uh, let's just say compared to a sprinter, most of it's a lot of it's the same. Um, 
historically great, like long jumpers, for example, have been great in the 200. So having good top end speed, being able to maintain that top end speed, having a rhythm and elasticity to that uh, top end speed that helps them to move throughout the 200. And even the 102, of course, um, shorter <clears throat> shorter iterations of top uh, end speed. But to me, a good key performance indicator for speed in the horizontal jumps is you can have a great uh, flying 5 meters at the very end of that approach, a great flying 10 meters at the very end of that approach. And so uh, in terms of the actual top end speed, yes, doing flying 10s is great, but also doing flying 10s or runway stuff with rhythmic elements to it, doing sprint, float, sprint type things, uh, doing sprint, float, sprints with uh, longer intervals, but also very much shorter intervals, which is something I learned from Darian Barr. And by shorter intervals, I mean even stuff that's 10 meters or less where you're switching between sprinting and floating just to develop that kind of rhythm, that rhythm that can turn into a more rapid iteration that prepares you to go into that final plant. Um, within that as well, I do think that this is something I've actually been meaning to get to. So this is a on the list <laughs> type type item, uh, but something you could probably play around with because I see this in jumpers a lot and more elastic jumpers, not more the, you could say wide ISA, more strength oriented or frequency oriented jumpers, but some of the really bouncy elastic types is doing kind of boundy type approaches. And I'm not saying you have to bound on your approach by any means, but even doing like bound sprint bound iterations as just a rhythmic exercise on the runway could be really interesting. Something I've used the last several years that I've gotten a lot of success with that I do feel is very helpful is using primers. So using either sled sprints, resisted sprints as a primer to the long jump session, using even long sprints as a primer. I've talked about, for example, the effect of running a fast 200 or a 150 and the impact that makes on a shorter sprint. So something I'll program for long jumping, for example, will look something like do three long jumps and you will do those, uh, let's just say it's from a six step or a 12 total stride, a shorter approach. And you're going to do that long jump and each jump in the series of three, you'll do three jumps. Each jump is a little bit farther. We get to that, um, that study by, it's highlighted by Thomas Kurz. Dan John mentioned it, where long jumpers uh, doing different distances leads to a farther total jump. So I use a lot of uh, interplay in how far you jump each time. Uh, so three jumps, get farther each jump, and then you'll go, all right, go run a 120 pretty fast. Go shake your legs out, maybe do a light hopping exercise. All right, now we're going to go back to the next round of three jumps that is increasing in distance each time. And so going through or having that interplay between the longer sprints, that longer, slightly metabolic type stimulus dropping back down into the jumps has been a useful way to do it. Um, other than that, too, just basic stuff with acceleration, acceleration days, 20s, 30s, 40s, using different waveforms of how we program those. Doing stuff with skip-ins, I think, is really helpful. You'll see long jumpers sometimes using a skip-in type approach. Again, not everybody has to do this. Uh, I know some <laughs> jumps coaches are a lot more uh, regimented with how they see the approach unfolding. I'm a very exploratory coach. I want athletes to explore how they initiate and gain rhythm in that acceleration. So I don't have one specific style that athletes must generate their speed in. I like to give them a little bit of exploration. And as long as they're being relatively accurate, we can uh, work with a little bit of that variety. So those are some ideas there uh, that I like to use with developing some speed and some more, you could say, rhythmic and elastic speed that does fit on the runway for a horizontal jumper. Uh, next question is uh, Hunter ISSP asking, uh, discussion or debunking that the traditional weight room makes you faster. And so I did cover this just a little bit in that first question. And so some things I look at is really what can the weight room uh, give you and when can it be taken too far or when can it take away from you? I think it's helpful, again, when we kind of like polarize items, when we don't, um, for me, I don't, although the weight room has, the weight room has been good to me and it's been not good to me. And then the same thing, especially my early, co early coaching years is was really good to some athletes and it was not that great to some athletes, especially in like a track and a jumps perspective. And so I've really tried to look at it on those levels throughout the years. Uh, so in the sense of what can the weight room give you for the sake of speed, uh, one thing that's, and I look at these two as things that you may not always need. They might work in terms of, you could think of it as, as grades or classes, uh, like you're in grade seven, you needed these things in grade seven and eight, but you didn't need them in high school, or maybe you needed it in high school, but you didn't need it as much in college. And so one of those things 
that the weight room can give you is uh, muscle size or hypertrophy that can lead to increased amounts of compression. Uh, Randy Huntington talked about this for athletes who just are, you could say they're skin and bones, they just don't have a lot of muscle size at all. Just uh, simply having more muscle size leads to more compressive potential. So if a muscle has more size, it can actually, just from a pressure gradient perspective, we're not even talking about necessarily the muscle fibers uh, pulling on each other or whatever the actin and myosin exactly do when they're under the microscope, but just from a general pressure dynamic situation, having enough muscle size gives your body a more compressive potential from that pressure perspective. So Randy had talked about doing uh, that or putting an extra hypertrophy-oriented training day in for those athletes who did need that a little bit more. And again, we can look at that from the perspective of grades. <laughs> you might need it uh, at an early grade, but at some point you might not need it. So the weight room can give you that. It also can give you more neurological efficiency. So if we think of muscles being able to either uh, work together, different muscular groups being able to work together in a way to move a heavy object. If we look at muscles or motor units in a single muscle, being able to get a greater proportion of those motor units to fire, uh, that could be something as well. But again, uh, if we look at grades, like an athlete who's just not as forceful might get that in an early level perspective. An elite athlete, a high level athlete who's already naturally strong might already have that. If we look at, uh, especially too, like if you looked at like that naturally strong of the freak athlete, you look like a Bo Jackson or Usain Bolt or something like that. Or, uh, but not just those athletes who are all the way on the extreme. There's a lot of naturally strong athletes who do already have a pretty good amount of neurological efficiency. So it might be something that some athletes might need more than others. I would say the majority of athletes are not maximally neurologically efficient and the weight room can and does help them there. But we also do want to look at it as a spectrum. I think it could be an error to think an athlete needs that for life for every year, every month of their athletic career. They need to constantly be using the gym to get more neurological efficiency. I just think it plays a role. It's like a it's a guide in your athletic journey. It's not something you absolutely need every single training phase to max out your um, neural wiring. Another one is that the weight room gives you is confidence. I think that you feel strong that can link into speed in a way that fits with, we could talk biopsychosocial and that psychological aspect of things. And then of course, there is some level of fast twitch development when you do train fast and powerfully in the gym. However, you could also look in the research and see that if you do pretty much anything outside of sitting on the couch, it kind of turns you to an intermediate muscle type, but then you can deload or rest or take a taper and then you're fast twitch, your, your super fast twitch, the X or the type two fibers will overshoot. So there is, there are those aspects of things. So it's not, um, it's not a total black and white uh, equation as I'm sure many of you are very familiar with, but it's nice to kind of list those pieces and those elements. And that can really help our intuition, especially when we're trying to decide what mix of things is going to work really well for people. So then we can talk, well, what doesn't the weight room give you? Well, the weight room tends to not give you more of that. Uh, you could call it maybe a triad, like that feet fascial high velocity triad of things. We could even talk or bring that angular aspect of sprinting in there. It's very hard for the weight room to really connect with that angular lever system and that were um, the way the body works in a very angular and integrated and high velocity manner there. It's really kind of hard to touch that in the weight room. Uh, we could look at it again versus like an accordion where the weight room tends to work athletes a little bit more like a vertical accordion of sorts, whereas getting outside the weight room, we see a lot more wheels. We see when we have horizontal velocities and we have a lot of rotations that uh, in a standing position, uh, we see a way more <laughs> circles and wheels happening in space. And so uh, the weight room can't give you that. And in terms of the speed level of things, it doesn't give you that very well. Um, these are things that hopefully young athletes are getting as they experience a variety of sports and movements and they're taking that into eventually when they do get to the gym, they have a lot of these abilities and it's able to all work together really well. And so we're looking at what the weight room can and can't give you. And I will say what it can't give you too is obviously it can't give you those rapid contact times associated with angular velocity. Uh, but then we just want to look at, well, when can the gym get taken too far? And this is where that art of it comes in, where it isn't that black and white answer, but we look at it well, okay, when am I taking the weight room too far? And that's when we're pushing, lifting, one or at max is when we're not seeing 
corresponding improvement in our sport-related outcomes, our key metrics for our sports. So our velocities, our swing velocities, our sprint times, our jump metrics. Uh, Another time the gym can be taken too far, especially for the sake of speed and short contact times is back to that accordion type nature of lifting, being a little bit more of an accordion. If we're looking at the levers and being a little bit more like that causes us to hang out in internal rotation for too long. So think about uh, if you think about like an Olympic lifter or even a power lifter lifting a heavy weight uh, in that reversal, the knees come in to create internal rotation and compression to help reverse that weight. But if that becomes too much of a paradigm, athletes take that internal rotation for too long of a time, it actually can uh, adjust that force profile to maybe staying on the ground a little longer, to contact times that bias just a little bit longer. And so that's something you can watch for uh, the narrow infrasternal angle, of course, if you miss the window of quick force production. So you have an elastic athlete that's grinding out too many lifts that can also kind of bias them towards more of a comp, uh, compensating longer ground contact time format. So, uh, And then, of course, looking at how the weight room is impacting joint ranges of motion and shape change and just checking on that over time. And then finally, uh, the last thing, I'll say it again too, the oscillatory and impulse stuff in the gym, as well as doing some creative complexes in the gym, I think that that can be a lot of fun, novel, it's enjoyable for the coach. And the thing with complexes in the gym is it allows us to connect things that are forceful with things that are more elastic and plyometric and speed-oriented in nature. And we can constantly be seeing how one thing impacts the other. And so I think this is a really good thing too. I know that answer probably went a few different directions, uh, but those are the things that are on my mind when it comes to that particular situation. I think it's just good to look at first, what can the weight room give you? What can it give you? When can it be detrimental or taken too far? And then looking at some of the crosslinks in the middle. Uh, next question comes from uh, Foles, who asks, he says, uh, hey, Joel, I love the last post you made about the two running backs at the NFL Combine. And just uh, for information's sake, that was an older post. I think I did that post like six months ago uh, from now is September. So uh, if you, uh, so I must have made it back in like the Combine season or the winter or something like that. Uh, could you discuss strategies you'd le- uh, take to get athletes with weak feet, uh, strong quads, to a point where they structurally favor the glute. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of class two work, which would be class two footwork, and mindful squatting with regards to the feet. Uh, anything else? Question mark. And then thank you, PS Elastic Essentials. Changed the game for me. Can't get enough. So yeah, I appreciate that. And so with the, just for those of you who didn't um, see, I never assumed that people uh, who are listening to this are looking at all my Instagram posts or, or ne- nonetheless like remember that when I did six months ago with the two running backs, but it was it was two running backs, and one of which uh, I think ran like a four three, and the other one ran like a like a four eight or something. So it was a huge difference. And the guy who ran very slowly was very uh, flat footed, quad dominant. And I think when I was putting those together, and even looking a little bit more deeply into those athletes and their athletic backgrounds, I don't think I posted this, but the guy who had ran a four eight, who was a slower mover, um, was I, I try to remember if it was a four eight. It might have been not that slow. I it was pretty slow, though, <laughs> to be honest. I should have the numbers here in front of me. But um, that athlete was also, I think he had gotten like a weight room award or something like that, which kind of, you know, with the last question kind of exacerbates like, oh, what about the weight room and speed and all these things? And so a lot of times that uh, I can see quad dominance does fit with overdoing the weight room. Uh, but let's talk about uh, some of the reasons that an athlete might be more flat-footed, quad dominant not able to get into their feet or their glutes well. Uh, One of the reasons is at the root is one's athlete's structure and their compression. I found that athletes who tend to be really compressed through the rib cage, for example, they don't have a lot of movement options in their rib cage and their pelvis, and they may be even a little bit limited in their hip flexor range and hip extension. A lot of times the compensation there is just, it just lands in the quads. It kind of just ends up using more quads to get that motion. Maybe they're trying to create um, a larger knee angle early just to get, just to be able to create more of a hip extension strategy, perhaps. There could be a lot of reasons, but as I've found it, athletes who tend to really, really lay into the quads uh, more than they should also tend to have compressive and a lack of range issues through the ribcage and pelvis. And so, 
you know, someone asked you about the, yeah, the um, functional patterns. That's actually a thing where that, that type of thing could be really helpful for those athletes where they're constantly bilaterally loading themselves and squats, deadlifts, benching, and all those, um, opening up the ribs, doing things that give the ribs range of motion and rotation helps athletes to be able to access the glutes better, to be able to produce those rotational movements that gives them more access there. So I do think that that is one thing that can really help. Um, as I found as well, quad dominant folks are oftentimes, uh, they tend to be a little bit more of the try hard type. Uh, they tend to be types that if you were to coach them in speed and you were giving them a lot of like positions to hit, you said, hey, get your knees up and your toes up or whatever, you know, very, that's a very common sprint prescription that I don't use. But those types of athletes would be, they'd be hanging on every word. They'd be doing everything you said with that. They'd be really trying to intellectually process sprinting, which in reality, sprinting is actually a hindbrain activity. I would almost say there's a connection between hindbrain being able to be in that subcon or really sprint from that true um, inner nature, that primal nature, and and being able to use and access rotations really well, subtle rotations and being um, more of that flow of movement where the rib cage is flowing and moving a little bit more where you're connecting with more of those uh, phasic rotational and angular muscles. I find that athletes who if you really actually try too hard in, in the linear or the 2D and you're really trying hard to hit every position and you could even throw stomp the ground in there type stuff, uh, that really linearizes, I don't know if that's a word, but the way the, the outputs go, the way the strategy goes. And the glutes, if we look at the glutes, uh, the glutes are actually a rotational muscle. The way the fibers are angled, they are angled at a diagonal angle. So their innate nature fits with rotation. So you have to be able to move the rib cage you have to be able to access rotations and again if you're if you're kind of stuck and if you're just really doing really rocking out the linear positional stuff really driving front to back and hitting positions and maybe you're stomping the ground type thing that's not really something that ties into that rotational a little bit more fluid uh fluid moving nature of getting glutes uh so the other thing too is the ability and this more fits with the feet is there's almost this inverse uh, relationship to sensing our environment, to feeling things and sensing things and going with the feeling. And that's kind of on one end of a polarity. And then there's another end where you're, you're really trying hard and you're really going to hit the position your coach told you. And I'm actually not saying that you should be all the way, and this is with all things in life, you don't want to be, in my opinion, just completely on one extreme end all the time. I do think, for example, and I do tend to coach, I want people to cultivate awareness and sensation and feeling of their feet and of how their body's moving and of what their body does when I ask them to do a particular sprint constraint or movement and to become attuned to that rather than just repeating back to me a cue I told them to. But I do think that there is room for more positional stuff or constraints that might put a more of a positional emphasis, for example, something like a mini hurdle drill. And But then rather than telling an athlete to hit a position over the mini hurdle drill, I will just ask them to notice how their body processed the mini hurdles. What changed when you ran over those mini hurdles? How did the sprint, how did the sprint feel different? versus, well, do this constraint and do this and look like this. I may actually not even say anything and just have them sprint and experience it without my opinions and help them to, and in doing so, they're going to form their own movement solutions to that constraint. Uh, there's an interplay of those things. I don't think there's no place for the more positional movement, but I just think when it becomes extreme, uh, then that can be a problem. So, uh, as I see it, a lot of times athletes who tend to run more flat or be more positional, they tend not to have a good sensory relationship with their feet uh, or just a sensory relationship with the run in general, but it does start very much so with the feet. Uh, with that, I just, I constantly think of like the Marinovich training system, a lot of the footwork that's done in the Marinovich system, uh, even some of the big like bulky discs that I've seen used there, they have like this sensory, it's all done barefoot and the surface is sensory. It's kind of like granular and you can really feel the impact of it of the feet all the way up through the body even just take your shoes off and just go run on the sidewalk and just do a few little jumps or pops in the air a little few skips and you'll it feels different than when you're running in shoes and obviously we do need to run in shoes at some point 
but just giving people opportunity to feel their feet and get a sensory feedback. And then you can take that ability into some of the more, you could call it coached up things that you do. So those are some things that you can look at with athletes who do display those characteristics. So the next question comes from Garvit Singh, 2011, and he asks, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but basically decode fascia or fascial training. We have on one end of, th- of things, uh, people saying that fascia is kind of like the end game or the end all be all in training and how we should move or adapt. And then on the other end, we may have people saying that or just neglecting tra- uh, fascia, not talking about it, not considering it. And uh, it's a great question because it does reflect, uh, as I kind of mentioned, like extremes or uh, being on one extreme a little bit more than the other. And so on one end of things, it's easy to say that a primary cause of training of uh, one human system is like the capstone of all training results. We could see this with like the nervous system or saying neurology is the end all be all in, in all training aspects. And of course, the nervous system is involved in all training, just like the fascia is involved in all human movement. You can't move without your fascia, but you also can't move without muscular compression or muscular action as well. There's You can't move without your bones. You can't move without nervous system signaling. So uh, all these things are, of course, involved in training and anything can be taken too far. It, you, there's going to be things that happen when you take like the nervous system to extremes. If your training becomes too obsessed with like weird little drills that might be good for some people, but also might be distracting from more, uh, more uh, greater global training concepts. And so, you know, I, same thing too, you could say with rotational training, I post a lot about rotational elements or the aspects of spirals that we see show up in training. But I also could take that too far. If every single thing I did in training became about rotation and spiraling elements, it actually could distract from generally just that global core of good, solid training. So no matter where, where you're at or what you're doing, you always need to keep the main thing the main thing. But we, it's kind of like when we see the role of all these things, it gives us a greater perspective. And I think that with fascia, if you just look at like the images, um, like anatomy trains, everyone talks about the book anatomy trains. I think that more of the images are the profound piece there as we see there that the body is connected, that there's these spiraling lines and slings that are a big part of our movement. You could look at the uh, midsection of a sprinter, for example, sprinting, and you don't just see the linear six-pack abs. You see this diagonal like fascial line that goes from, for example, the left hip to the right rib cage. So we see these slings happening in action. And if anything, it just tells us, hey, we should just make sure we train human beings like human beings. They sprint they jump they like swing things like you could say swinging a bat but also you could look at swinging a club or a mace bell or just just reminding or uh, the the slings really to me just remind us that this is how we are wired to move and that we should have these rotational connected pieces in our training but i also don't think that means that we need to make absolutely everything about um, the fascia because it's it's one of those things too or just like the nervous system it can become, it can easily become a little esoteric, a little bit gray, and a lot of things in life are gray, of course, as, as with all training, there's, there's things that aren't just purely black and white, and that's the art of coaching, and that's the art of training, but when things do live in the gray zone, and fascia can very quickly become that, we can attribute everything, we can attribute every training result to the fascia, we can attribute every training result to the nervous system, we could attribute every training result to spiraling or whatever. So um, those things are all important, but I just think it's important to also just watch how far we attribute one thing or take one thing. And so, you know, the last thing I'll say with that is, is, yeah, know the body's connected, do rotational work, train gait. Um, Other pieces that we can look at that are a little bit more fascia specific are, well, yeah, the feet, uh, the feet, if we look at the feet and with Chongji and the hyperarch, we did this uh, podcast a long time ago. But one thing I just thought was so awesome that Chong noticed was that you can see the tensegrity of the body, and we can think of the connective tissues and the fascia as kind of being these um, guy wires. Or if you look at like how bridges are constructed, or a long dinosaur neck, that there is a tensegrity present that helps that animal to hold its head up, or that keeps the bridge up, and even how particular sculptures are made. 
And so we just know that this is present in how it's a part of how we do create tensioning through our joints. And with Chong mentioning, you see it in the foot. You see how the foot changes shape to represent tensegrity and tension. You see it in how the ter- the toes end up curved, and you see it in how we see the three arches and the tendons on the top of the foot. So the the foot is this. Um, it's almost like a beacon to that tense uh, tensegrity nature within the body. So that, if anything, it does tell us uh, that the feet and how we train these things is important. I also think there is something to be said about connective tissue and higher reps when it comes to the feet and things like that. Uh, there's also, with the fascia, it is interesting that one of the pieces that I think fascia can highlight is um, like tensioning and length and sensory elements. Uh, so one thing with the length is just, and again, if you do like a extreme iso lunge or a stretch range lunge it's not just training the fascia <laughs> but it is there is a piece there i believe and i think having like that lengthened aspect to our connective tissues also fits with uh, we could say a fascial type piece of the training uh, there's also sensory feedback that exists within the fascia and even things like you could say foam rolling is foam rolling really getting the knot out of your muscle i would say no but it does give you sensory feedback and we could say the fascia is actually a part of that That can even be just as simple too as just like you could just take your fists and do gentle percussion on your muscles and get that. You could rub your calves uh, before a jump workout or something or a jump set to get a little bit more sensory feedback going through the lower leg or even when you take a tennis ball and you roll the bottom of your foot. Like these are things that are interconnected and sensory. And so I don't think all training needs to revolve around the fascial element, but at the same time, it's another piece just as everything else. And I think it's definitely worth looking at. The next question is from Joe Ferrigno25. He asks, thoughts on reactive squats? So great question. Uh, I did a really good uh, podcast with Brady Volmering not too long ago, and he was talking about the impact and effectiveness of drop catch squats and drop catch bench, um, bench pressing in his own training regime. And just the act of catching a weight that is dropping, the same thing as like a an altitude drop or a depth jump, there is an impulse value to that. So there's going to be a massive amount of muscular tension required that is going to be forced uh, forced on the body really beyond like a slow lowering situation. And so we know we have a powerful training stimulus there. Uh, where I've gone with that or the way that I've found uh, and directed it over time, uh, a lot of this tends to come from, well, what worked well for me? And then I tend to put that into the programming for athletes was I've had good experiences doing drop catch type single leg work. I remember my senior year in college doing that with high jump and feeling like that was helpful. Although in hindsight, I think that may have contributed to spending a little bit longer on the ground than I needed to in how I was using it. Um, I've gone more towards using it more generally in the sense that I like it for things like a hang squat clean where you're pulling a weight off the blocks dropping under and catching in a squat. Uh, More recently with the oscillating type elements, I've uh, done that where I will do a hang squat clean catch and then do an oscillation and come up out of it. There's just a ton of impulse, high tension muscle value there. I know that uh, some weightlifting coaches, Olympic weightlifting coaches have talked about the difference in some weightlifters. I believe it was American versus like, you know, the the rest of the world or or very high level like European uh, type weightlifters, uh, maybe the Chinese as well, was that Americans tended to catch and catch on the ligaments, like just catch and kind of ride it until the, or ride the lift to the bottom until the hamstrings were onto the calves and the muscles and ligaments and all the soft tissues kind of became loaded and slowed everything down versus uh, other Olympic lifters who would just catch it and freeze on a dime. And there is a lot of value in catching something, be it a drop or catching a weight and being able to freeze instantly. There's a huge muscular tensioning contribution, obviously, the connective tissue as well. And so I think that's valuable. And I think the little oscillations there are really valuable. Uh, I've catered to doing that a little bit more than the back squat variation, although I think that could be very effective, especially in terms of just being a potent training stimulus as well. When it comes to things like back squats or split squats, I will tend to treat that more from an oscillating perspective so more so than drop catches i've tended to use uh, more oscillating reps as like with jeff hauser and sheldon dunlap we talked about that in the podcast recently Uh, and then when it comes to actually dropping and catching i have uh, lent more towards front squats 
I do I do think that's a little bit you could say it's safer <laughs> or it, the, the way it loads the body and the catch is a little less compressive or it's more legs than back or whatever and you you could say maybe there's hair splitting there but I, that's the way I have preferred to utilize it but again I think drop catch back squats could be certainly a very potent stimulus as well uh, I've just catered more towards the oscillating variations once you get there uh, Joe also asks how has your experience been uh, well, one, I missed this one. He says, are you still playing ultimate Frisbee? Uh, I did not this summer, but I'm hoping to pick that up this fall. Uh, I love ultimate Frisbee. It's just one of the best. It's just a lot of fun, but it's also an awesome training stimulus too. And a lot of good things that come with that. So I hope to continue that this fall, uh, pro force, as I talked about when Kevin Hollabaugh was on the show, they have their baseball players, a lot of minor league and pro baseball players playing this ultimate Frisbee game. That is amazing. And I hope to continue on with that and my overhead shot needs some massive work so you know what later today i might actually go out and just try to do some hammer throws and i'll set up a little target or goal and try to up my game there because i was lacking at that before um joe also asks how has your experience been with the exogen wearable resistance have you gotten faster uh yes absolutely uh exogen is amazing and i don't just say that because they uh, have been a sponsor of the show or i have a an affiliate or a discount code um, but I say it because I just think I look at training and I see, you, you almost think about, well, what is training going to look like in the future? And I can see in the future with the Exogen, Lila, microweights, angular velocity, specifically overloading athletes and patterns that are very much uh, similar to what they're doing on the field or the same as what they're doing on the field, but overloaded. And you can also mo- uh, modulate like the angular pieces of the rotation based off where you put the weights. Just really cool stuff. I just think that type of thing makes training extremely efficient and effective. Uh, for me, uh, so I'm going to be turning 40 soon. Uh, last year, in la- there in the last year, uh, one of my sprint distances or my key sprint distances is actually a 120 meter slight uphill grade near my house. That's one of the big uh, places I've used the Exogen. I actually haven't made it to a track so much in the past year just from time and efficiency's sake. But I can tell you that my 120 distance has gotten about two tenths better this past year with actually doing a little bit less sprinting overall. I had my Achilles flare up at the beginning of the summer. And so in the process of getting that under control, I didn't do quite as much sprinting and plyometric work as I typically would. But doing the exogen and doing a lot of hill-based work with the exogen and then doing weaving in a little bit of the 120 work has been one of my main sprint type workouts. And then using the exogen and then where you would actually do a uh, potentiation-based setup where let's say you start with 300 meter weights on each calf sleeve and also doing the same thing with the shorts. And then every sprint you take 100 uh, grams, I think I said 100 grams, I might have said 100 meters, uh, 100 gram uh, weight off. So every sprint you take 100 gram weight off until you're basically with zero or maybe you just leave it on one leg as an asymmetrical. I have found that to be an incredible, incredible potentiation device one of my absolute favorites and so you know even if you you don't have to get the whole body suit to experience that you can just get the calf sleeves to experience it uh, just take a little bit of weight off each sprint i uh, fit in some rotational pieces to how you manage manage the weight uh, you can also do kind of like a, a spiral with it so you can put the weights on biasing left on the left leg they can bias right on the right leg uh, working that way and then taking the weights down over time there's so many cool things you can do with it so uh, yeah, absolutely. I've gotten faster, love using it, and it's helped me to do more with less uh, in the world of sprinting. I've even used it with javelin a little bit to like weigh or externally rotate my throwing arm to get me to really feel that uh, javelin release position a little bit better and then taking, again, taking the weights away as I move towards just uh, normal, typical throwing. Uh, next question comes from Toolbox Gym LV. Uh, which is the best alternative to sprinting in a gym with little space. And so, yeah, this is a good question because when you don't have space and sprinting really works on getting that wheel bigger, the angular and rotational velocities, how do we train these things? And when we look at the muscles that those velocities develop, developing, for example, the hip uh, hip flexors, psoas, glutes, uh, lower leg impacts, things like that. And then we also have the tie-in, the rotational upper body tie-in with the obliques up into the upper body. How do we create training that can really help that out? Uh, the answer with, for example, Polish athletes back in the 80s and when the mock drills got invented and they didn't have a lot of space to run indoors is that's where all the A skips and the B skips and all that stuff came from. It was 
the way to basically train the sprint muscles in small spaces. And they would do those at high frequencies and cadences. And I think it's kind of funny how now that has become like a way to supposedly train technique when that wasn't meant for technique back in the day. That was meant to train the sprint muscles, the sprint muscle groups. So that's that's an easy way that you can get that stimulus in. You could use like the the Leela, the microweights, exogen. That's a great way to you can tack on to that type of stimulus with the sprint drills. What I've found is that if you have even if you have 20 or 30 meters, you can then use a combination of like a sled sprint, a run rocket, like a chain on the ground, some sort of resisted sprint that will at least get the wheel type stimulus going in the hips and glutes. From that point, you can also do a lot of multi-jumps for the feet. So bounding variations, speed bounding variations, single leg type variations. Uh, but the thing you have to really supplement, I found, is more the hip flexor stuff. So more that thing you're getting at the sustained top end speed that you don't get as much in acceleration. So for that, I know Chris Corfus was on recently talking about doing things like standing leg swings, again, using the uh, exogen uh, wearable resistance on the calf. Um, I like doing personally for that hip flexor, I really like front side dominant static dynamics. So for me, I like where you're, uh, and this was a Jay Schrader exercise where you're pausing your, your standing and you're swinging your uh, leg up and down in front of you, pausing at the top, then swinging it down to the bottom, pausing at the bottom and just being very like static dynamic. So you're like freezing on a dime, like that drop catch at the bottom. Then you're swinging back up to the top, freezing on a dime. And then you're feeling, you get a little bit of a, a pump in that hip flexor muscle. You're really feeling that work. So you can do that as a standalone. You can mix it in uh, with doing things like uh, sled sprints and some multi-jumps. And then you got your uh, hip flexor work to supplement that. I think doing things like uh, flex leg bounding is good as well because that allows you to do a little bit more in a small space. I was going to say too with the, the hip flexor and going up into the upper body or the abdominal contribution uh, this was another Jay Schrader exercise that I like. I was using this a lot this winter, programming it a lot this winter, is things like a rapid switching abdominal exercise. So you're laying on your back and then you are doing like an ab bicycle, but it's like a positional, like a freeze and an explosive version. And so you're rapidly switching the legs like a bicycle, but you freeze rapidly in each position, try to keep the low back from coming off the ground. You can get uh, ad abdominals and hip flexors there. Again, things you're not going to get as much when you're not able to open up into that top end. But combined with the multi-jumps and the sled type stuff or the resisted, I think you can do uh, decently with less space. And the last thing I'll just say is doing drops. Like uh, I've become uh, much more for a long time now, or at least a while now, I've been a fan of doing like the single leg altitude drop legs again out of the Jay Schrader system. Uh, but single leg drops have really been coming up more and more and more in my warmups for sprinting. So in a small space, you could really warm up with those as well. All right, next question is GS Performance Lab. This was actually two people who actually asked basically like the same thing. Uh, so GS Performance AB and Leaping Leprechaun asked thoughts on power training, uh, plyometrics, and, um, and throwing versus moving lightweights fast. Um, I think another way of putting it was the value of Basically, what's the value of moving lightweights fast in the weight room? Like, let's say go at 50% and move it really fast and get, you know, X meters per second versus, um, well, just let's just leave that to plyometrics. Let's just leave it to sprinting or let's leave it to multi throws. And you could also say, what's the value of moving a lightweight really fast versus moving something that's a little heavier, 70, 80%, where there's a little bit more just raw muscular tension, although for a little bit longer in time. And so in addressing this question, I'll just say for me, there's really two brackets of weights. And if we're talking about moving lightweights fast, uh, there's above 80% of your one or at max, which is a fundamentally heavy weight. There, the main value is just pure muscular activation, the intention needed to move the heavy weight and overcome gravity. And then to me, lightweights is not like 40 or 50%. To me, lightweights is more 60 to 80% that is moved fast. And then if it's going to be around 60%, that's when we get into more of the oscillatory type of thing. And you could even maybe then go down to a little bit lower, 40 or 50%. Um, but I wouldn't do like a, like a full eccentric, concentric up and down with like a 40 or 50% for the sake of speed. Um, at that point, I think there's way more value in just doing a sprint, a jump, a throw, anything like that. Um, to me, other than that, we have the heavyweight value just with that neural potentiation. 
And then we have slower, lighter weights, 60 to 8%. That, that's still, to me, potentiation, but it can be better for athletes who, like a narrow infrastructural angle type person who doesn't want to grind out sets. They don't want the bar speed to slow down. Uh, I've found that for a, like a narrow ISA, an elastic type, that range can still be a good range to use that still offers a fair amount of resistance. But um, for those athletes, when it comes to moving fast, just move fast. Um, and then you, can, you have the oscillatory type stuff. But um, yeah, definitely not a big um, like in the middle type person, even to the point of where I think it's more common, something like dumbbell jumps. Like if you're doing standing vertical jumps with a dumbbell, like you're holding 30 pound or 15 kilo dumbbells, I, I don't actually see a lot of value in that because I would just rather, I would rather either jump fast, jump reactively or just lift a heavier weight. I actually want it to be more polarized uh, or do a drop or something like that and stop on a dime. Uh, just because once you get into the full concentric, eccentric, or doing a standing vertical jump with added load, I find that it just doesn't really fit as much to that reactive way that we're meant to move. And I'd, I'd rather keep things a little bit more polarized in there. So um, I think I'm trying to read if I had anything else. Uh, yeah, usually, again, maybe even back to the very first question about getting more out of the weight room. I think that just having the mentality of trying to find, feel, and work with more in the dynamic space before you try to find the things that transfer in the gym is generally a good idea. And it actually helps you to get a better sense, a better feeling of what in the gym might be a little bit of a waste of time. And I think that's very much where I, um, I came from that place in the sense of doing uh, well over a decade of just going through every plyometric and jump training and, and, and strength, but also a speed training program and just getting a nice intuitive sense of what felt good, what felt right, what felt like what it would work. And then when I started to experiment more in the gym, I think I, I was able to carry that sense with me a little bit. And so, yeah, I just think polarizing and being able to sense what really works from that dynamic speed, plyometric, ballistic throw space will help you to understand if, you know, if and what is doing something in the gym when lights get just really waiting fast. And that's, again, why I think I've really honed in on the oscillatory stuff when you do get a little bit lighter, because it does just feel more like muscle action in dynamic sport. Uh, next question is Kevin. Uh, Mick17 asks, what's the most valuable thing you've learned coaching uh, U5 or U6 kids? And so, yeah, I talk about um, coaching youth soccer a lot. And I appreciate this question just because, uh, like Michael Zwiefel has said, uh, he has mentioned uh, coaches or being a really good practice for coaches to coach uh, both youth athletes and then pros because you see where it starts and where it ends. And that helps you to gain a valuable perspective on things. For me, I think one of the absolute biggest things is just seeing the importance, if we talk about like game speed, just how important it is for athletes to perceive and react to situations aggressively. And how you see very early on good athletes, they basically do not have fear in, and soccer is the youth sport that I coach, they don't have fear in getting into a situation and they don't lose a lot of speed when they're on the field doing the athletic tasks, where Athletes who aren't as attuned to the, the information on the field, um, they're, they play slower. They just move slower. They run to the ball slower. They run back on defense slower. Even though if we do, I remember I saw this, um, I remember one day we did like a relay race after practice or something. And I think we did one like with the ball, dribbling the ball. And then we did one without the ball. We had like a team of four and they had to run to a cone and back. And it was just kind of funny to see um, the best uh, athlete on that team, the best soccer player, and again, they're just five and six years old or whatnot, but the kid who was the best soccer player, when he actually just had to run in a straight line and didn't have any perceptual or environmental information, it was almost like he didn't know how to do it. <laughs> and he actually wasn't much faster than the other kids. But when it came to dealing with information and the soccer ball and playing, he was amazing. And so, it just, if nothing else, has reinforced uh, with me the value of just how we, it, every time we uncouple game stimuli with a movement, we just realize that it is separate. And to be good at the game, ultimately, and again, you know, we talk about playing different sports, and that's really important, playing different sports, getting different skills, taking time away from your sport, doing some general things that have nothing to do with sport, general training. But at the end of the day, if you want to be a good athlete, it is so much about being able to work with and attune to specific information on the field and being able to open and close those 
feedback loops faster, being able to make decisions. And you see it early in athletes who are good. It even reminded me a little bit in seeing that in my own experience. Uh, Rafe Kelly, who's been on this podcast, had a clip of his son, I believe is eight or nine and was in a youth track meet. And he ran, I think the 50 meter dash and the 50 meter hurdles. He made it on some other events, but he ran um, faster, I believe in the 50 hurdles than the open 50 and he won the open 50. So he didn't have anyone to chase, which again, there's an environmental stimuli. It kind of drags you forward. Hey, I have someone to chase. I can run faster, but it's just interesting to see young athletes when there isn't um, something to chase a race or some sort of environmental stimuli uh, versus having a hurdle, having an objective. Uh, and I think if you watch uh, Rafe post clips of his son training, he's always doing like parkour and ninja warrior stuff and all the other athletic things ki- uh, kids do. So it's just a cool, um, it's a cool example of seeing someone who, when you have the, the environment to pull you forward. And so it always just reminds you of how important it is to always have something that's motivating in the environment that helps us be it speed training or sports specific training or anything else. And then along with all that too, there is um, just the emotional and social piece of it. You see just how uh, social, and, and we all are, but just how much with kids, it's like a raw nerve in the sense of their social and emotional state. They don't cover it up like adults can, or even like older athletes can, or they can't, you know, when older athletes learn to start to intellectualize and add the intellect into the training process, whatever a child's social and emotional state is much more there and apparent. And so in that perspective, you do learn or get a greater intuitive sense of what makes us tick um, because we do carry still, we still have those inner states or those inner child states with us. We just learn to work with and manage uh, with living in the body (laughs) of an adult and the mind of an adult. But just knowing and seeing those things, I think is just really valuable because those pieces, pieces of that are still very clearly there as athletes get older and you do learn, uh, especially on the level of like just motivation and then also seeing when an athlete might be having a hard time and you can look and be a more a little bit attuned to some of the social and emotional factors of why that is. I think it's very helpful to uh, work with children. And then the last thing I'll say there too is just imaginatory uh, play. I know that like when soccer practice is happening, you see like it's all right, all the five-year-old soccer practices are happening. There's maybe... 10 practices happening at once. And so I remember when um, my son was having his practice, I wasn't coaching his team, but I was there and watching some of the other coaches. And I saw the most like dynamic and exciting practice was with a coach who on another field who hadn't coached soccer before. I think this was actually with four-year-olds. Um, so even younger and even more, I mean, imaginatory stuff, obviously good for five and six-year-olds as well, but even more so for four-year-olds. And this guy, he was just using storytelling and just being dynamic. And it was almost like a play. And, and, and there was always like something they were doing that involved like, all right, you're all tigers now and you're doing, you're on the hunt and we're doing this. And the kids were so into it. They were flying around the field, super excited. And then you look like one field over and there was something a little more boring happening. And so, again, I think that we do obviously change over time, but I think that it just kind of ties into eventually you look at coaching it so often it just becomes a set of rules a set of instructions and i just think there's there's that core within us that wants a story and the stories change as we get older but even look at if you've been following like deon sanders in colorado and you look at how he motivates his players before the game the stories he tells i mean this is the way that that evolves as athletes become older and more mature and what are the stories meaning now it's just really cool to watch. I know I've, <laughs> I've taken coaching and I, I know, um, I think Dion actually coached um, kids, um, like younger athletes in his coaching. He didn't just um, coach pros. And I, I probably need to do a little more research on all the ages of athletes that he's worked with. But I know he, he worked with younger athletes before he got into his current position. And so I, I think there's value there. And I think there's value for all of us in, in kind of spanning um, a group, a different groups of athletes and gaining different perspectives. Okay, uh, next one is Ignite Performance Vault asks uh, the effectiveness of max velocity work for distance athletes. And so there are two sides. Uh, this is a great question, by the way, because again, this, this kind of things, it's great to ask questions that get outside of our typical populations, our typical groups that we coach, because when we see perspectives on coaching this group, it, we can bring that back into our core philosophy. And so I think there's two sides to the coin with distance athletes. Uh, let's say milers, two milers, athletes who run the 5K and sprint work. 
Um, one is that it is absolutely is helpful for distance runners to have a fast and athletic component of their training. I don't think this just needs to be doing things like a flying 10, however. I think that uh, distance runners have got this naturally or in other training through things like running hills fast, so sprinting relatively maximally up hills, uh, maybe playing ultimate frisbee, uh, of course, doing things like flying 10, uh, flying 10s. I've also seen uh, training where distance runners have done hurdle drills, hurdle dynamics, explosive med ball throws, uh, light plyometrics, like doing uh, more advanced sprint drills, flex leg bounding, light bounding on the turf, uh, running sprinting stadiums. Um, so I think that, you know, if I, if you're talking like the core package for the whole distance running group, so I'm talking like 800 meters all the way up to your 5K, your your three mile maybe even your 10K athletes, I think the base package of his general coordination. So we're doing hurdle drills, we're doing sprint drills or advanced sprint drills or light plows on the turf. We're doing some med ball throws, some stadiums, some stadium jumps and some kind of, you could call them garden variety, intermediate plyometric type things. I think that's great for all distance runners. And then I think the more they trend towards that 800 mile type, I think that's where a lot more of the flying tens can really be uh, more maximized just in the sense of you know, Hank Kreienhoff has talked about uh, archetypes of athletes and a phrase he's used is cats and cows. And you could think if a cow isn't made to jump, how often should we make that cow jump or expect it to jump and how will it impact the training program? And I would look at it in the sense of, in the same way, I think that doing fly tens is uh, a valuable thing for distance runners. But if an athlete is definitely way more on that distance end, they're more of like a 5K, 10K runner, they're a little bit more compressed with a range of motion and their sprint looks more just like a fast shuffly way that they actually run, <laughs> maybe that um, that athlete isn't getting as much out of that as an 800 runner who actually can get up and sprint more effectively. And so I just think that's something to consider. Uh, with that too, I've seen um, back when I was at Cal, I saw athletes who were like 1500 mile types, 800 types, they would do overspeed training. They would get pulled with bands. They do maximal 200 reps and things like that. And for those athletes, it did seem like that worked quite well. Um, that was also something too, though, that, and, and who knows exactly what, but it does seem something that you could be riding a razor's edge with how much you do with that in terms of uh, tapering and being sharp and not overdoing the nervous system, of course, as with all things. But it did seem like those athletes were really able to get to a very high level doing those kind of things. It wasn't the long distance that did it, it was the shorter. It was like the the mile and 800 types that were doing that kind of thing. So yeah, those are some general ideas there. The last thing I'll throw in is I would always look and value at general rib cage and basic um, like like crawl, roll, being able to manipulate the spine and rib cage with distance type athletes because a lot of them are a little bit more compressed or they have less movement options there. And I would say that's especially true with some of the longer distance runners. It's just the nature of distance running. They're just going to fall into uh, more of a singular compression strategy where things can get a little bit tighter. They may lose a little rib cage motion. So I think that keeping those general basic type exercises, again, back to even like functional patterns type stuff, or you could look at like David Weck type coiling type stuff, uh, that can be valuable when it comes to those types of athletes to give them the movement options to have a more uh, dynamic sprinting strategy. And the last thing I'll just say, just just doing stuff like sprint buildups, I think is good. They're just slowly building up to a top speed where they're working through a range of dynamic ability uh, can also be helpful with that one. Um, next question, George Fraser asks, do you see value in concentric only jumps for vertical jump and sprinting? So, and I kind of mentioned this already, doing things like a dumbbell jump squat, uh, I am not a huge fan. I, I could see a little bit, uh, this kind of coming off of the, the tail end of the Bill Hartman, uh, pod podcast talking about, um, infrastructural angle archetypes. So someone who's a power archetype, a wide ISA, and he was talking about doing like a box squat with bands where you're exploding, you're sitting down in a box, exploding off of it. And that's more of the way that wide I say athletes produce power and also when you're sitting down to a box and you're a wide ISA it allows it allows the pelvis to settle it allows the um, I believe anterior pelvic floor to expand a little bit so that has benefits for a wide ISA I mean I could see that kind of thing being more valuable for a wide infrasternal angle and in terms of feeling developing intuitive feeling I could see like dumbbell jumps or seated dumbbell jumps or those kind of things being something that a wide may feel fits with their power production strategy. For me as a narrow, it hasn't been something that's felt good 
So this is something actually where as I learn more about biomechanics and I learn more about these things that make athletes tick, um, I do actually include more of the uh, at least explosive um, box squats with the bands for those wide types. Uh, I don't or haven't been plugging in like the dumbbell jumps yet, but that may be something that starts going into wides programs more as I continue to learn more and experiment and things like that. Uh, next question is Anton uh, Bragi asks, uh, thoughts on training and competing in minimalist footwear for basketball? So minimal shoes, uh, no heel buildup, anything like that. I, I would say, you know, for basketball, I, I think this is kind of my rule of thumb. If it's um, natural surface, do a natural shoe, like a barefoot shoe. So if I go for a trail run or something like that, or when I go and run in a creek or anything where it's a natural surface, I think natural minimal shoes absolutely crush it because you can feel the little rocks and all the little textures and it's differing textures. And I think this is really helpful when it comes time to play basketball. I think that some of the shoes or the footwear, the features of footwear is there for a reason (laughs) Um, because like cavemen didn't have a nice smooth basketball court to play on. And so I think some of the features of a slightly elevated heel, I don't think, again, it can be extreme. We can have extreme buildups in shoes. For me, just looking at shoes that are um, generally athletic, not overly crazy built up, I think are generally fine for basketball. And if you do want to use minimals with basketball, I think just shooting around in minimal footwear can be great. Like doing Basic movements where you don't have to really push the hammer down on changing direction quickly and things like that, I think is probably a nice balancing point. So shooting around, great. Uh, Once you're actually getting to playing and competing hard, I would suggest that probably wearing the typical basketball shoes that have been designed for a reason are probably uh, the way to go. Uh, Last question here is Eddie Running Rabbit. He says, do you think it's more important to do jumping with body weight? Uh, or doing power work. So I guess you could say that this goes into kind of the jumping with weights type thing uh, or jumping, you could say weighted vests or doing like uh, the power type lifting. Um, I would look the base, the base package. And this even goes back to like, you know, we want to eventually be like the Usain Bolt or Bo Jackson or, or Michael Jordan. They did most of the work with the body weight. That's their base ability and package. We want to get to that place if we can. So Uh, To me, a lot of jumping with body weight and then the variability that exists within that is my base package. I would be much much more likely or less likely to do a lot of like dumbbell jumps or weighted vest jumps or those kind of things. Um, I'm always looking for the the main package of things to be stuff that I do um, do with body weight. So uh, that finishes the Q&A for today. Thank you all for the questions that you put in. I appreciated uh, you doing that and then answering them. These are always fun for me. So appreciate it. Thanks again for listening.